Good evening, everyone. Welcome. It is uh, really good to have you. So, Q&A, huh? You guys like the Q&A? <laughs> All right, good. Uh, welcome, uh, everybody who's here in the sanctuary, those of you over in the cafe, in the gym, in the conference room, in the choir room. <laughs> those of you at the block, at Stowe and Aurora, those of you tuning in online, welcome. It's great to have everybody. All right. Uh, let me uh, tell you how this is going to work uh, tonight, and uh, then I'm going to well, invite Robbie up, and we'll go ahead and start. If you're on the Hudson campus, uh, then uh, wherever you are, you need to make your way. If you want to ask a question, you can make your way uh, to the back right there, and you'll talk to somebody who will uh, help you frame your question, and then you'll come down to the mic and then ask your question. If you'll stay there uh, as long as Robbie takes to answer your question, that'd be great. If you're at one of the other campuses, then uh, you will text in your questions, and uh, you will, there'll be a number on the screen right now, and then as you text those questions, uh, they will come to my phone. I'll be up here, and uh, I'm going to be checking my phone. <laughs> so while Robbie's answering a question, I'm not playing a game on my phone. I'll be checking my phone <laughs> for the text, for the, and then I'll ask a question, the questions from the campuses. Um, and let me tell you what I really hope this night will be for. Uh, I want you to ask questions that you've been asked as you've tried to share your faith that have uh, been troublesome for you, that have, where you've tried to answer or you didn't exactly have the right answer. Uh, it, or if you're here and you have a real problem with Christianity and with the faith, then I want you to please feel free to ask the questions. This is your time. Uh, I don't want to ask questions that are like, hey, stump the guest, all right? Uh, this is for, to help us share our faith, or grow in our faith, understand our faith, and be able to defend our faith, all right? So uh, that's what we want. Uh, those of you uh, who have uh, cards, or uh, since this is a Micah 6-8 weekend or anything like that, that you want to drop off, there are boxes in the back. You can drop those off at any time. Uh, and all that will, any gifts will go to RZIM, Ravi Zacharias Ministries. All right? All right, let me have, Ravi, would you uh, come on up? And I'll put you on this side. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and ask Ravi uh, the first few questions. Uh, because they're questions that I get or have gotten. And this will hopefully give you an idea of the kind of questions that uh, we're looking for. All right? And if you have a question, you can start to make your way there now. All right? Uh, let's see. First question. Uh, there are people that I've talked to or heard that they'll say uh, science uh, has always been closing the gap uh, between what we know and what we don't know. And before science became uh, so relevant to our lives and so advanced, uh, people used God to fill those gaps. Well, for instance, uh, very early on when thunder would happen, because they didn't know really what thunder was, they would attribute it to the gods. Uh, so people read the Bible the same way. They'll say demon possession. They didn't know what schizophrenia was, or they didn't know what epilepsy was, so they attributed it to demon possessions. And eventually, our knowledge of science will grow to such an extent, it'll close all the gaps, and there is no need for God. How do you respond to that? 
I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks to everybody for coming. That's great. <laughs> I asked Joe if I could also make an opening statement so that you know how these questions are going to be answered. And then I will take that, the gaps of metaphysics and all other disciplines over against a scientific single vision, which is what that proposition is talking about. Um, there's a funny story I often tell of these two guys who are talking to each other, and one fellow says to him, you know, I'm a little bit thirsty, and so I'd like to make a bet with you. I'd like to ask myself a question, and if I answer it, why don't you buy me a Coke? So the guy says, what did you say? You'll ask yourself a question, and if you answer it, I'll buy you a Coke? He said, he said, that's not a bet. He said, no, no, no. Then you ask yourself a question, and if you answer it, I'll buy you one. And we'll keep going this way till one of us asks ourselves a question we can't answer. Well, I said, this is the strangest bet I've ever heard of. He said, but since you proposed it, go ahead and begin. So the fellow said, my question to me is this. How does a rabbit burrow a hole deep into the ground without throwing mud onto the outside? He said, that's my question to me. How does a rabbit, how can a rabbit burrow a hole deep into the ground without throwing mud onto the outside? And he said, my answer is, let's start burrowing from the inside. The other guy says, how does it do that? He says, I don't know, that's your question. <laughs> I was walking through the Newark airport some years ago. It was about 6, 6.30. I'd taken a long 14-hour flight. I think it was from Bangkok or somewhere. And as I was walking, went to the gate, to stay, I looked at the marquee, and it showed a different flight to mine. I was looking for my flight to Atlanta from Newark. And so I tapped the lady on the shoulder and said to her, is this going where it says it's going, or is it supposed to be going to Atlanta? She said, oh, no, it's going to Atlanta. That's just a previ previous flight. So I said, well, good to know that. So I turned around to walk away, and I heard the patter of feet behind me. And then she tapped me on the shoulder. She said, excuse me, are you Ravi Zacharias? I said, I'm afraid so. Yes, I am. <laughs> she said, that is absolutely amazing. I never thought you would have questions either. The fact of the matter is, we all have questions. I believe there's a difference between a question and a doubt. A question is probing, trying to unpack, trying to get deeper and deeper into a subject. A doubt sort of becomes a stumbling block in your journey to an answer. I look at a one, two, three, four, five grid, and I'll give you this and then start the answer to the first question, because I think this is very critical. One, truth is the ultimate goal in all of our questions and our pursuits. Truth is the most valuable thing in the world. It was Winston Churchill who said in warfare, truth is the most valuable thing in the world. It's so valuable that oftentimes it's protected by a bodyguard of lies. We have to get to the truth. Number two, how do we test the truth? There are two broad theories one is called the correspondence theory, the other is the coherence theory. When you go into a court of law and a witness is being asked to give answers, the attorney is looking for two components here. Are the answers corresponding to reality? And when all of the answers are put together, is there a coherence to these answers? So it is generally acknowledged that there's correspondence and coherence. And then three, you test the truth by logical consistency, empirical adequacy and experiential relevance. 
Is it logically consistent? Is there an empirical way to verify this or is just an assertion that is not even falsifiable? And ultimately, is there any experiential relevance to this? One, truth. Two, correspondence coherence. Three, logical consistency, empirical adequacy, experiential relevance. Four, there are four questions you deal with. Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Now, it's very important what I've just said to you. A worldview deals with these four subjects. Where did I come from? What gives life meaning? How do I differentiate between good and evil? And what happens to a human being when he or she dies? Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Now, to get to these, this is the biggest challenge. There really are five disciplines you have to pull together, especially in a worldview that's claiming all of the answers are there for these questions of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. God, knowledge, reality, man, morality. God deals with theology. Knowledge deals with epistemology. How do I get to this? Reality deals with metaphysics. Morality deals with ethics. And man deals with anthropology. So you've got theology. You've got metaphysics. You've got epistemology. You've got morality. And uh, you've got uh, anthropology. All of this brought into that. So as I attempt to answer your questions, remember this is what I'm actually trying to accomplish. Present to you the coherence of the Christian worldview how it is coherent and consistent with all of the claims that it makes. If you counter that, you have to put your worldview to the same test. Can you really put the answers together with the five various disciplines, the four questions, the three tests, the two categories, and the ultimate pursuit of truth? I just wanted you to have that in your background. Now I can go home and you can start asking yourself the questions here. The issue of the gaps, science will one day conquer everything, every agnostic terrain that we walk through. It's not only a pipe dream, it is false. Even the great Stephen Hawking attempted to do that in his latest book when he was uh, talking about uh, how he was going to give a pursue for a theory of everything and so on. And uh, in his, on page five of the book, he makes this comment. He said, philosophy is dead. When he said the philosophy is dead, we, the theologians, didn't have to respond to him. The philosophers responded to him. And the chairman of the philosophy department at Cambridge, where I did my, some of my philosophical work, he made this comment to Stephen Hawking and to the rest. He said, maybe it's about time that the oracular professor Hawking recognize that we have kept up with his discipline much more than he has with ours. And that's in the, it was the book, The Grand Design, which Hawking had written, that philosophy is dead, science was going to come up with a theory of everything. Maybe the oracular Professor Hawking needs to realize we have kept up much more with his discipline than, with he, than he has kept up with ours. Today at lunch we're having an interesting conversation with a total skeptic. And now my friend Sanj and another friend Jared who's here were in the audience and they were in the discussion at lunch. And this other gentleman, you know, looked at a kind of a scientific single vision for life too, is going to explain it all, although he had studied philosophy. And he went on to say, he said, no, you know, I love these two guys. I love Sanj and I love Jared. I said, wait a minute. What scientific theory defines love for you? 
You have just made a philosophical assertion, not a scientific assertion. Is there any objective point of reference for the definition of love? These are metaphysical propositions. And Michael Polanyi, the great philosopher of science, in his life, life work called Personal Knowledge, which was a required text in the philosophy of science for years and years and years. You go into any philosophy of science professor's room and you will see Michael Polanyi's book there sitting front and center. And he warned scientists not to make the cardinal blunder of thinking that science is going to explain everything. For example, if you're a scientist and you're in the laboratory and you're doing your experimentation looking for a scientific single vision of life, here's my question for you. What scientific imperative tells you that you must be honest in your findings? That's not a scientific argument. That is a philosophical argument, an argument of why you should be truthful. Do we expect are scientists to tell the truth? Do we expect the findings to be revealed as truth? Science may get us to many, many hills that we can climb and arrive at, but the ultimate question of life is going to be one of meaning and purpose and loving relationships. That will not come to you from a scientific single vision of life. That's why the founder of the Goddard Institute of Space, Robert Jastrow, is known so well for that famous statement in his book, God and the Astronomers, where he said, for the scientist who's been living by this dream of his, that he's going to arrive at all of the answers, in, in, uh, going to arrive, arrive at all of these answers by science alone, that dream is going to end as they climb higher and higher and higher up the mountain and they scale up right to the top to think they've found the final answer and they might well be greeted by a band of theologians who've been sitting there for centuries. <laughs> that was Jastrow's comment. Now I want to read for you one more statement on this and then we'll move on. And that is the statement by the famed physicist David Berlinski who responded to uh, Richard Dawkins's book, The God Delusion. Berlinski, who's an agnostic, is of a Jewish background, but he's an agnostic, if not a skeptic, wrote a book in response to the Dawkins's book, The God Delusion. His was called The Devil's Delusion. And in the flap of that book, here's what Berlinski, a skeptic, says. Has anyone provided a proof of God's inexistence? Not even close. Has quantum cosmology explained the emergence of the universe or why it is here? Not even close. Have the sciences explained why our universe seems to be fine-tuned to allow for the existence of life? Not even close. Are physicists and biologists willing to believe in anything so long as it is not religious thought close enough? Has rationalism and moral thought provided us with an understanding of what is good, what is right, and what is moral? Not close enough. Has secularism in the terrible 20th century been a force for the good? Not even close to being close? Is there a narrow, orthodox, narrow and oppressive orthodoxy of thought and opinion within the sciences? Close enough. Does anything in, the, anything in the sciences or in their philosophy justify the claim that religious belief is irrational? Not even in the ballpark. Scientific atheism. Is scientific atheism a frivolous exercise in intellectual contempt? Dead on. Now that's Berlinski. 
He's not trying to make a case for any religion. He says, I'm not there. I'm an agnostic. I'm a skeptic. He said, but when the sciences move into this terrain with the autocracy and the arrogance of a single scientific vision for all of reality, they are moving beyond the purview of science and are becoming very unscientific at that point. So I say to you, science has been of a great help in getting us to so many arenas and helping us with medicine and knowledge and all of that. But science will never be able to answer the questions of love, meaning, and purpose. And if the scientific premises turn out to be true, that we are the random collocation of atoms, of time plus matter plus chance, you will be left with no moral perspective on which to condemn anybody who chooses to behead someone in public and gloat over it. Because those are moral issues we are dealing with, and science doesn't deal with morality. And if it talks about the evolution, of morality, then it is deterministic, and if it is deterministic, it is not making a true assertion. And therefore, if it says that morality is not true, the assertion itself either claims to be true or is not true. And if it claims to be true, then it goes beyond science. So I just tell you, they've got a big gap between science and ultimate metaphysics, and that gap can only be filled by true religious thought that is coherent and corresponding to reality. That's it. Okay, all right. Actually, I kind of hope that answer would be short enough for me to remember. (laughs) Go ahead. This is how we sell CDs. Okay, all right. In a number of places in the Bible, God seems to refer to himself in the third person. This morning we're studying the Great Commission where he says, all power has been given to me. People use that to say that he never claimed he was divine. We kind of put that on him later. And I was wondering, I've been asked that question. I was wondering how you address that question. That Jesus never claimed to be divine? Right. Like in the Bible, they say he never directly said, I am, you know, he says, I am the way, the truth, the life. He says a number of things other than I am God. You got my Bible there? Let me just give it to you. Several passages. If you look, for example, at John 8, where he is described to be the I am, nothing could be a greater claim than before Abraham was I am. He says, that is the very word of Yahweh, I am. Before Abraham was I am, he is already his eternal existence. In, in Mark chapter 9 and 62, he is asked indeed if he is the Son of God, and he answers that in the affirmative. When in John chapter 20, when Thomas comes to him and uh, reaches and touches his side, ho kureos mu, ho theos mu, my Lord and my God. In Matthew 16, where Peter is talking to Jesus, and Jesus says, Who do men say that I am? And you know, he posits the possibility of Elijah, John the Baptist. He says, Who do you say that I am? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He he said, blessed are you, Simon. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. If you go on to uh, John 18, where he's standing in front of Pontius Pilate, the very claim that he makes, are you the king then? And he says to, G, he says to Pilate, who's put this question to you, or are you asking this question of your own? And finally, he looks at him and says, you're right in saying that I'm a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. So if you look at... Um, Mark 9, if you look at Matthew 16, if you look at John 8, John 20, and the biggest question you have is, 
Why did Jesus actually, why was he crucified? He was crucified because he claimed to be the very Son of God. By contrast, let me put this to you. When Muhammad started receiving a revelation, he didn't even know what was happening. He claimed to be receiving all this revelation, and he went back and told his wife what was happening. She said, the angel is telling you something, you know, go and listen. So he had no self-awareness, self-awareness of what was going on. Jesus knew exactly who he was. Before Abraham was, I am. Flesh and blood is not revealed to you, but my Father in heaven is in heaven, that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. So it's not just the I am the way and the truth and the life. He claims to be pre-existent before any human being, and that is only an attribute of the divine. Uh, this is a question from the Stowe campus, and it'll say, uh, it says, how do you respond to non-believers who accuse Christians of being hateful to people who support lifestyles that are not according to the precepts of our faith? I think this is a very important question, and they all are, really. Um, I'd be a dishonest person if I said to you that that question doesn't worry me, that I don't even think about it. In fact, we as a team, our entire team, people like Nabil Qureshi, Michael Ramsden, Oz Guinness, Amy Ori Ewing, our entire speaker's team, have often sat around the table and said, you know, how do we deal with this very trying social issue of our time? And even though the word is not used here, the idea is, you know, the, the homosexual lifestyle and all that has come about in our time, how do we as Christians deal with it? So, Joe, if you don't mind, I'd like to take an extended answer on this, you know. Let me give you about three panels of an answer. The first panel is the logical problem. The second panel is what I call the theological problem. And the third panel is what I would call the relational problem, how you communicate it. So let me take, first of all, the sociological issue here. What is the problem now? We talk about tolerance. So when I was at one of the prestigious universities, somebody went to the microphone and asked this question. And I said to the person, I said, I will be glad to answer your question if you will first answer mine. What kind of a culture are we living in? You have to define it for me. I said, as far as I know, there are three cultures in relation to absolute. The first, que- the first culture is called a theonomous culture, where the law of God is supposedly so embedded into our hearts that we all emotively or otherwise think in the same categories. Once upon a time, we would talk about the natural law in those categories, natural law. We believe these truths to be self-evident. The early framers believed in the natural law. We don't believe in natural law anymore. But we used to talk about it, and that's a theonomous culture. Theos, God, nomos, law. Sometimes the Indian culture will get close to that. It's not always the case, but they sort of, dharti ke admi is what they will say. We are people of the soil. And the idea of respect for parents and all of that, they consider to be self-evident, uh, ingrained in the heart of man and so on. But we don't believe in the theonomous culture in the, in the West. So what's the second kind of culture? The second kind of culture is a heteronymous culture. Heteros meaning another, nomos meaning law. So we have another law. What does that mean? The mainstream of the culture is dictated to by the leadership at the top. 
If you look at Marxism in secular terms, it is a heteronymous culture. The handful in the top will control the masses. If you look at Islam, it's a heteronymous culture. If you go to Saudi Arabia or you go to Iran, which are supposed to be truly Islamic countries, the mullahs or the sheikhs or who are the ayatollahs of the top will tell the masses when they must fast, when they can eat, what they must wear, what they must not wear, who they can be seen with, who they cannot be seen with. All of the dictates, even to the discipline of how you wash your hands and feet before you worship and so on. It's a heteronymous culture. The few at the top dictated for the masses below. So I looked at the question and I said, are we a theonomous culture? He said, no. I said, are we a heteronymous culture? He said, no, we don't want the few to dictate it for the many. I said, so that leaves us with the third, which is an autonomous culture. Autos meaning self, nomos meaning law, which means each person dictates their own moral prerogatives in the sense. I said, are we an autonomous culture? He said, yes. I said, all right, now tell me this. If we are an autonomous culture, and I answer your question, are you going to give me the privilege of my autonomy too? Or as soon as you disagree with my answer, you will switch to a heteronymous mode and dictate for me what I must believe as well. That is the sociological dilemma. That is the sociological dilemma, because if A disagrees with B, it's not just that A is being enforcing his or her principles upon B, but B wants to enforce his or her principles upon A. So there's a mutual autocracy being sought here, but it is never going to be consistent in a culture that is neither theonomous nor heteronomous. Autonomous cultures run into a conflict where everybody has their own autonomy. That's the, law, that's the sociological issue. You move beyond that then to the theological issue. The theological issue is this way. Years ago, I was doing some open forums at uh, Indiana University, and a press reporter was, I was there with Dallas Willard. We were both doing the defense of the Christian faith, and a press reporter came and said she was filming some uh, religious actions on campus for, for their network and so on. Uh, do you mind if we tape what you're going to talk about tonight. I said, no, that's all right. You're welcome. But she, then she startled me by saying, we'll only be there for about five minutes, and then we'll be packing up and leaving. I hope we won't disturb you. And I thought, well, this is what the news does with a talk, takes five minutes of it, and then tells people that this is what was said, you know? I thought, okay, I wasn't going to argue with it. I said, ma'am, you're welcome to leave. Just tell your crew to be very quiet, because once I get into the thick of it, I really don't like the distraction, and they'll be quiet, slipping out, I'll be okay. She stayed the whole time, stayed for the whole talk, stayed for the Q&A. And then she said, can I walk you back to where you're staying? I was staying on the campus. I said, right. And she was walking with me. It's quite dark at this time. And she says, um, I have a question for you. I said, is this on the record or is this an off the record question? She said, no, this is for me. I said, so you promised me this is just between you and me and Oregon Prentice. And I said, no. okay. I said, all right, I just want to know. And so she said, you know, I have a problem with Christianity, and here's my problem. Christians are generally against racism, but when it comes to the homosexual, they discriminate against the homosexual. How do you explain that? I said, I find your comments so interesting. In the first part of the question, it's an ism you're talking about. In the second part of the question, you particularize it with an individual. So I'm just fascinated by that, but that's okay. I said... Here's what I want to say to you. The reason we believe that discrimination ethnically is wrong is because the race and ethnicity of a person is sacred. 
You do not violate a person's ethnicity and race. It is a sacred gift. And the reason we believe in an absoluteness to sexuality is because we believe sexuality is sacred as well. And that's why we make our choice that same way. I said, you will help me if you will tell me why you treat race as sacred and desacralize sexuality. She was very quiet. She said, I've never thought of it in those terms. Here's what I want to say to you. Marriage, as God has given it to us, and if you take the whole corpus of the worldview, is the most sacred relationship into which you will enter. Because love is given one word in English, but there are four words in the Greek. Agape, eros, storge, and agape, phileo, storge, and eros. Agape is God's love. Phileo is friendship love or brotherly love. Storge is protective love or parental love. Eros is romantic love. I said, do you realize marriage is the only one that pulls these four together? Agape, phileo, storge, and eros. I said, and if you take agape out of that, eros is gone for whatever you want to do. Romantic love becomes redefined. And to us, the Bible gives the sacredness of marriage as Christ is to the church, the bridegroom and the bride. And in that sacredness and the beauty of a consummate relationship between a man and a woman, as it is shown in the singular commitment of the marital vow, I do and I will. When you say I do to the one, you say I don't to all of the others. And you say, I will to one, you're saying, I won't to all of the others. So any departure from that beauty and sacredness of the four confluences of love is a biblical notion of what it really means to be married. And to just take one behavior and make it look like it's aberrant is not right. All departures from that are not acceptable in the sight of God. The theological position is a consummate relationship between a man and a woman in the procreative act and in the sacredness and paying each other the ultimate compliment of taking each other at their word. So theologically, this is the way we see it. Sociologically, we've been put into a conundrum. So we come then in relationally, how do we deal with it? And here's the hard part. But you know what? And my wife will tell you this, others will tell you this who know me. I accept people with a love and a genuineness, regardless of what their view is on anything, if it's different to mine. I have learned to love humanity. I can put my arm around a person who has a different view on marriage or a different view on politics or whatever and just say, you know, God gives you the most sacred gift of the prerogative of choice but God does not give you the privilege of determining a different outcome to what the choice will entail. The consequences are bound to the choice. And you go right back to the book of Genesis and it tells you, you do what is right, will not you, will you not be accepted? But if you don't, sin stalks at the, at the door, desires to have you. And so when I look at the sacredness of marriage, any change from it from the biblical point of view is a departure from the biblical mandate. But at the same time, the Bible commands us to love even those with whom we disagree. And our responsibility as the church is never to hate. 
the individual. Our privilege is to love, and only God can change the heart of a person, and God is the ultimate judge. And in a pluralistic society, let us as Christians be both light and salt and learn to love one another and let God be the judge over all of us. He is the one who is pure in his judgments. We can make errors. Those are the three panels I want to leave with you. Hi, Ronnie. Hi. Um, this is a, a follow-up uh, to that question in one way. You mentioned in your book, Is Your Church Ready?, that uh, music and the arts have done more to shape the soul of the nation than logical argumentation has. And it seems like homosexuality is one issue of a number of issues where this discussion isn't necessarily happening, happening at the logical level. It's happening in the arts. It's happening in music. And so we've got this kind of powerful narrative happening there to which the church kind of has its propositions to respond to. Um, what, what would your advice be to local churches about how to engage with those issues using music and arts and you know, those pop culture elements? Yes, you're, you're referring to my quote in one of my books from the Scottish political activist Andrew Fletcher, who made the comment, let me write the songs of a nation. I don't care who writes its laws. And what Fletcher was talking about is that a culture is more often shaped by its imagination and by its arts than it is by its re, by its logic or philosophy. Uh, when you uh, think of how uh, we even have an impact in our culture today, it's the arts that have this supervening uh, compression upon our culture and the icons tell us how they live and then they become the people to whom we listen. Uh, I, I look at it this way. When you are a young father or a mother and you're dealing with the children's questions, how do we deal with epistemology, the subject of how do you know something is true? Obviously, you don't tell the little kid that big word. Uh, otherwise, uh, that'll be the last time you engage your son saying, I want to get into epistemology with you. <laughs> Although, my three-year-old grandson, I was telling them, he's, he can, I don't know where he gets his vocabulary from, frankly. But uh, <laughs> some time ago, he was talking to his mother, and he looked at her after the prayer and said to her, Daddy prayed, and you said, Amen. Why are you saying Amen when he prayed? So she started to explain what amen meant and went on a little too long in the explanation. This three-year-old boy puts his arms up like this and said, will somebody please explain to me what on earth has just happened here? <laughs> so I'd be careful with what vocabulary I use lest you turn out somebody like that and he doesn't know what on earth you're just talking about. Philosophy is a reality of life, whether we like it or not. But philosophy comes at three levels. Level one is argument, the laws of logic. It comes to the front door of reason. Level two is the imagination. It comes to the back door of the arts, music, drama, play, plays and literature. The existentialist philosophers of the 60s and 70s like Camus and Sartre 
They were brilliant philosophers, but they didn't philosophize in the form of logic and reason. They philosophized mainly with the arts and their novels and the stories that they told. And they won a whole generation of young people with their plays and with the drama coming in through the back door of the imagination. So level one is argument. Level two is the arts. Level three is what I call the kitchen table level where you apply the reasoning. Now, follow me very carefully. It is very important when going for the truth that you argue at level one, illustrate from level two, and apply it at level three. You cannot argue at the second level or the third level. You cannot just say, this is the way we do it, you know, and this is the way our family is going to do it. You can't say, do you remember that story in this play, da-da-da-da-da-da, or the words of that song? They are meant to be illustrative, not a kind of uh, uh, dic dictatorial in what they are pronouncing. Argument has to come at level one. Arts have to come at level two and application at level three. What's happened in our culture by the loss of philosophy and reasoning, we have evicted logic and we have moved directly to the arts. And I think it was uh, Dostoevsky who said first art would imitate life then life would imitate art, and finally life would find the very reason for its existence in the arts. First art would imitate life, then life would imitate art, and finally life would find the very reason for its existence in the arts. That's where we have arrived. And the music and the drama and the arts have really taken over and commandeered our thinking to an anecdotal point where we no longer have to rationally and logically defend it. Now the problem is logic can seem so sterile and impersonal and hard and just uh, some demagogic way of teaching. No, I think the way you do it is by asking the right question. For example, if somebody says, you know, I, whatever I do makes me very happy. And that's why I plan to pursue that. I say to them, are you willing to give your neighbor the same privilege if he's a bully? Do you want your neighbor to say, this is what makes me happy? You see, subjective emotional responses are hardly the litmus test whether something is propositionally true or not. Truth is primarily a property of the propositions. Thy word is truth. And in Jesus you had the embodiment of all that. The word became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth, embodying the truth. So if the arts have commandeered and taken away our way to think, you have to find table discussions around with people who are moving in that direction and ask them the hard questions till logic comes to the front and they realize that if you live a contradictory life ideationally, your life will break down and fall apart. It cannot sustain itself because the law of non-contradiction applies to reality. It's the responsibility of the church to teach its young people to think well and to think rightly and artistically to translate it as, a, as illustration, not the reverse and that way around. That's why the Bible doesn't say in the beginning was video. <laughs> says in the beginning was the word and when the word is transmitted to the picture we have to make sure that it's accurate I saw a t-shirt in Asia with a fellow walking with a book in his hand hurriedly and on the t-shirt it said never judge a book by its movie 
And I would say to you, let us never judge what we ought to do just by the arts, because the arts like to claim a freewheeling relativism, but the Bible says to worship him in the beauty of holiness, even art must have a boundary. And if we worship in the beauty, if we worship in the profanity of holiness, that is a contradiction in terms. Okay, thank you. There's a question from a campus. It says, uh, how would you explain the drastic difference between um, the wrathful Old Testament God and the loving New Testament God to a skeptic? I'm losing my microphone. It's not anchoring problem. But can you all hear me? Sorry about that. Let me see if I can take this one out here and put that in the pocket and then see if this anchors a little more comfortably here. When I was born, I always feared a growth on my face. And now that's what I have most of my life. All right. Can you hear me now? The wrathful God of the Old Testament over against the benevolent and the gracious God of the New. It's a false dichotomy. If you really look at the Old Testament, you have to first see what it is that was being accomplished there. The moral law was given to a people with a dynamic attendance of the supernatural and the miraculous. If you go through the Exodus, punctuated miracles the time of creation, the time of Moses, the time of the prophets like Elijah and Elisha. You move on to the time of John the Baptist and the early church. Those are the classic periods of miracles. And when the dramatic disclosure of God was attended by such incontrovertible evidence, like food coming from the heavens to take care of you every day, a double portion coming before the Sabbath, when the waters are getered, when the bitterness is taken away, when the dead are raised like Lazarus and so on in the New Testament, in proportion to the nature of the dramatic miracle was the rightful expectation of compliance and obedience. Because if you don't obey in the face of such a dramatic revelation, you will never obey no matter what happens. That's the first thing I want you to know. Second thing is that God was building a covenant people through whom he was going to disclose himself. But in that covenant relationship, you hear such extraordinary statements. You see, for example, in Isaiah, I think the the parable of the vineyard there where he says, what more could I have done for you that I have not already done? Wherefore, when you're looking for grapes, why do you, when I'm looking for grapes, why do you bring forth wild grapes? When you look at the book of Hosea, it is the most magnificent exposition of the love of God. How do we know that? Because here's a prophet by the name of Hosea who marries a woman by the name of Gomer who turns out to be a prostitute. Imagine being Hosea and looking for your wife in the heart of the city and you see a lineup of men who are standing outside the brothel to buy her for an hour's pleasure. And Hosea stands in line to buy his wife back for a day's rations and half the price of a slave of that time. He brings his wife back. Imagine that feeling of the one you have loved becoming a harlot. And yet what does God say to him? I command you to go and love that woman beloved of her adulterers. It's the ultimate expression of grace. So when you say it's a hard 
concept of law and judgment. No, no. We are missing the proportion of the revelation and miracle that God is expecting a response to it. And we are missing the fact that he loved them so much. And in the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, it begins by saying, I have loved you. And yet you say, in what way have you loved us? The love of God is the central feature of the Old and the New Testament. The reason I think there were more dramatic moments in the Old Testament was because of the dramatic nature of the miraculous. It did also happen dramatically in Acts 5 with Ananias and Sapphira at that moment when the, when, the, when the whole issue of the Holy Spirit is brought into being in the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So when a dramat, when the, at the, on the heels of the defend, descent of the Holy Spirit, where the dramatic nature of the miraculous is disclosed, you still blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, the judgment could be pretty dramatic. That's why the Bible says, to whom much is given, much shall also be required. That's one of the scariest verses in the Bible to me. When you're entrusted to be a spokesperson for God, God's going to hold people like us more accountable, and that's not a happy feeling. You have, to rea- you have to realize what that means. So the gospel of grace all along is there in the Old Testament. And let me look at, let me look at it this way. Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, purely grace. Abraham is asleep. And the animals are drawn, drawn and quartered, and the presence of God moves through that in that covenant, implying, if I fail to do what I'm promising to you, may that be done to me which has been done to this animal. But Abraham is asleep. He's not making a proportionate commitment at the same time. It is just the benevolent heart of God that's willing to give him that. The one portion that always troubled me was Moses. You know, that's the last character in the Bible I would wanted to be. Imagine leading all these people for 40 years. I would have said, I've had enough, Lord. You know, just, just get me across. And then, of course, he doesn't. But God gives him one of the extraordinary privileges. He first tells me, no, you're not going to get there. But I'm going to be your undertaker. And he buries him. And then in the New Testament, at the transfiguration, who does he bring with him? Moses and Elijah. So ultimately, he did get there. He was brought about in a more glorious moment. And I see once again the picture of grace, of how God is like a child who doesn't do his homework, and you say, I'm not going to eat dinner, but that only means at 6, at 7 o'clock, you'll ultimately give it to them before you tuck them into bed. The story of the whole Bible is a story of grace. It is a concept and a doctrine foreign to every other religious worldview. It is central to the teaching of the Bible that God offers you grace. Explain to me how a woman with five broken marriages could be changed into an evangelist. But that happened to the woman of Samaria. He sent her into the Samaritans to become the first evangelist. How does a woman who had lived such a dissolute life bring her alabaster ointment and the Lord allows her to open that and he pays her the greatest compliment he paid anybody. Wherever the gospel is preached, there shall also this be told of what this woman has done for me this day. The Bible, Old and New Testament, is a gospel of grace. And if today you are languishing far off and thinking you've blown it big time, I tell you we have a savior for you who is willing to forgive you and embrace you and give you that fresh start in life again. The Old Testament law was a schoolmaster to teach us 
that we could never come to him by law alone, only by grace and the bridge that he provided, can we then go and honor the law, not as a means of our salvation, but as a reflection of it. I just want to add one footnote. An Iraqi Muslim convert came to my office, and he told me this. He said, I'm from Baghdad. He said, I cannot tell you for all the years that I struggled because I know when I was going to paradise, my good deeds were going to have to outweigh my my bad deeds. My good deeds were going to have to be heavier than all of my bad deeds. He said, Mr. Zacharias, I used to walk to the farthermost mosque I could get to and I would count my steps laboriously earning these points and the right to God's mercy. I would consciously try to do so much good because I know I'd done so much bad at the same time. He said, now, as a child of God, I gladly do the good because I'm a forgiven child and experience his love. And I know ultimately it's his grace that's going to get me there. I'm not going to have my good deeds weighed over against my bad deeds. It's a world of a difference. My question is, if our God is a loving God, why is the path to heaven so narrow? Why is it? The path to heaven so narrow. Oh, okay. If God is a loving God, why is the path to heaven so narrow? For the same reason, the law of gravity is just one. You can't have your own law of gravity, and I have my own law of gravity. Truth, by definition, will always be restrictive. If the alternative is taken, that you do not have any restriction to truth, then there's no real distinction between truth and error. Truth will always have its boundaries. But I realize what you're saying beyond that. Your question is really not that the truth has its boundaries, but why are the boundaries not including so many others who may try so hard and work so hard within their own consciences and so on? So I would just say this to you. Whenever you get a legitimate currency, there will always be those who try to come up with a counterfeit currency. The fascinating thing to me is it is really not narrow. To me, it is so merciful that It would be narrow if I were told how many laws I had to obey in order to get there, how many events I had to observe in order to get there, how much money I had to give in order to get there, what I had to do to break out of a caste system, to climb the ladder. That to me would be narrow. If you take, for example, the pantheistic worldview and the caste system today, where you can do nothing to change why you are born this way. Your karmic debt has to be paid and has to be paid and has to be paid. That's narrow. You cannot break free from the shackles of the caste of your birth. The Islamic worldview to me is very narrow. You have to observe the five pillars. You have to pray in this direction. You have to give that much. You have to uh, uh, obey, say the creed and the shahada and all. And you have to do the fast of Ramadan. And if you possibly can, you've got, got. Those are very narrow restrictions to me. When the Lord Jesus says, if anyone comes unto me, I will in no wise cast him out. 
I don't see that as narrow. I see that as all of a sudden opening the floodgate, the gates of heaven, so that anyone who calls unto him can receive his forgiveness. The narrowness lies in the fact that I cannot manufacture my own truth. God is one. And God's provision is for you and for me. And all he's asked of us is to receive that provision. And if I turn my back upon that provision and want to find my own answer, then I am not being admitting to the generosity of God. I'm wanting to become narrow in my own choices. So I don't see it as narrow at all. The grace of God is the most abundant gift. And the final thing I will say to you is, you know, there are many times that I have seen or heard of what all happens in a person's deathbed. And I'm, I'm not a medical practitioner, but I have heard that sometimes the hearing may be one of the last senses to go. And even if they cannot gesture to you, they can hear things that you are saying. My wife and her sister are here. And his daughters were uh, at his bedside uh, where my, their father, when he died at the age of 85, his daughters were at his bedside and his wife, and his wife of 60-some years. He was a great man, one of the greatest men I've ever known, always lived by the book, as it were. But in the days before he died, he was struggling because it all happened so suddenly. It came as a shock to him. He was so healthy, he developed some back pain and thought... It was removing some bookshelves, found out there was cancer, I think, in the kidney or something, and ultimately, I think within a matter of a few weeks, he was gone. But he was silent for some protracted period of time. But his last two statements were he looked to the heavens and he said, amazing, that's just amazing. And then he looked at his wife and said, Jean, I love you, and he was gone. Coming out of silence, what glimpse was given to him, I'm waiting for that day. And then to be able to honor your trust and say, I, lo I love you. So sometimes people in their silence, even on their deathbed, you and I never know what's going on between God and them. And we leave that in the hands of the living God. He knows how to deal even with a person who cannot speak to you or me. He can speak to them. So take that in your heart. Thank you. Okay. okay another, uh, another question from a campus. Uh, how do you deal with somebody who says, uh, I've been through immense suffering or trauma, and I just can't believe in a God, the God you talk about who loves me if he would let this happen to me? Because I meet that a lot. Yeah. But. I think that's the, that's the number one question, Joe. And whoever has asked this question, somebody has said, virtue in distress and vice in triumph has made atheists of mankind. Virtue in distress and vice in triumph has made atheists of mankind. It's a daunting question. You know, sometimes, Joe, you know, I think about when I go onto a campus or whatever, sometimes people almost think like you're an answering machine. You don't think of these things. We do think, as you as a pastor well know, because you minister to people in their most broken condition, and oftentimes you just walk away from there with tears in your own eyes. Now, I want you to know I'm not just talking out of a vacuum of philosophical understanding. I'm talking out of a life that has lived through a lot of pain, lived through a lot of pain. Uh, I was in my 20s when I lost my mother, and uh, it was, if it were not for my mother, I wouldn't have made it. I would not have made it. 
she is the only one who had the hope that somehow I could be rescued in life and to lose her that early was hard I lost my dad five years after that and in the 1980s I injured my back very badly and I've had two major heart surgeries as I stand before you I have two titanium rods in my back that goes from L3 to S1 and I'm bolted down with eight sets of eight screws and four clamps and uh, I for, for years and years and years I would wake up and I would never know how the morning was going to be I remember those days I'd sit in my car with the steering wheel in front of me I'd park put my head on the steering and just cry in agony the pain was just so bad any one of you has had serious back issues you know how psychologically and emotionally debilitating it can be so I'm talking to you not out of the theoretical side but let me move now to the theoretical side and then get to the applicational side C.S. Lewis used to say this no question has really been fully comprehended until it has been fully posed and its assumptions understood nothing is no question has been comprehended until its assumptions have been understood after it has been fully posed so if a person for example says I don't believe in God because there is too much evil in this world I've had that said to me in a university setting in Nottingham I've used that illustration so many times a guy stood up and said too much of evil in this world there's no God and I said you don't believe that he said I do we carried on this way for a back and forth some of you probably seen in my books or in my Q&A uh, CDs or whatever it is and I said to him when you say there's such a thing as evil aren't you assuming there's such a thing as good he said yes I said, when you assume that such a thing is good, aren't you assuming that such a thing is a moral law by which to differentiate between good and evil? You must have a point of reference by which to differentiate between good and evil. He sort of hooed and hard about that a bit, and I gave him the illustration of Bertrand Russell debating the Jesuit philosopher Frederick Copleston. When Copleston said to him, Mr. Russell, how do you differentiate between good and bad? Russell said the same way I differentiate between blue and green. Copleston said, wait a minute, you differentiate between blue and green by seeing, don't you? He said, yes. How do you differentiate between good and bad? And here's this brilliant mathematician philosopher. Do you know what his answer was? On the basis of my feeling, what else? Well, Copleston was kind. Had I been there, I'd been very tempted to say, Mr. Russell, in some cultures they love their neighbors, in other cultures they eat them. Do you have a personal feeling about which is better of these two? <laughs> See, when you say there's evil, there's good. When you say there's good, there's a moral law. And he granted that. I said, but if you assume there's a moral law, you must posit a moral law giver, but that's whom you're trying to disprove and not prove. If there's no moral law giver, there's no moral law. If there's no moral law, there's no good. If there's no good, there's no evil. What is your question? <laughs> he stood there, looked at me and said, what then am I asking you? I knew what he was asking me, but I was just trying to remind him, logically, this is a chaotic question as much for the questioner as it is for the one being questioned. There is no absolute morality without God. So if the question is meaningful, God has to remain with the paradigm, within the paradigm. If there is no God, it's a meaningless, emotive question. It is not logically consistent. So logically, you have to evaluate the question, and God has to remain in the paradigm. Number two, if that is the case, then we have to realize 
that what has ultimately brought evil and suffering in this world is our departure from God. Sin is a violation of purpose. We have departed from him and the solidarity of our humanity has that ripple effect where it comes upon all of us, pain, suffering, anguish. And when we come back to him, we come back to him by faith and by his grace in order to sustain us and give us that day-to-day strength. So if you are suffering as a person, as a questioner, I just say to you, first remember what Chesterton said, when belief in God becomes difficult, the tendency is to turn away from him, but in heaven's name, to what? When belief in God becomes difficult, the tendency is to turn away from him. In heaven's name to what? What paradigm are we going to turn to to answer this question? Are we going to say it doesn't matter or it's not real? So I give you two illustrations what I want to sustain you with here. Annie Johnston Flint was one of the greatest hymn writers. If you read her biography, it's called The Making of the Beautiful, written by Roland Bingham. She was born as, a, as Annie Johnston. Shortly after that was orphaned and raised by the Flint family. And so she's known to the world as Annie Johnston Flint. She suffered a lot in her life. She got rheumatoid arthritis till she was twisted up in bed for many, many decades. She had cancer inside of her. She was incontinent and lived on diapers and blindness started to overtake her. She was a beautiful hymn writer and one of the most beautiful hymns she wrote. Roland Bingham said before she died from head to toe there were so many boils and marks on her body from lying in bed that she needed eight pillows just to cushion her body. And she wrote this, He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he addeth his mercy to multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving has only begun. His love has no limit, his grace has no measure, his power has no boundaries known unto men, for out of his infinite riches in Jesus he giveth and giveth and giveth again. The grace of God, the grace of God that sustains you will be the testimony that will carry you ultimately to the end of the day. And you know what? This is not a cakewalk. I would never have dreamed that I would have to live with the kind of ailment that I'm living with right now. But I want to say, when I injured it, I little realized how it was going to change my life. So I want to give you this little positive illustration and then... May I recommend you get our book called Why Suffering? I've co-authored it with my colleague from Oxford, Vince Vitale. He is a brilliant writer. Vince has some insights into this that are so good. And he's just a powerful, he's a, his PhD is in philosophy from Oxford University. He's on our faculty at the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics. So the Zacharias and Vitale, Why Suffering? We go through several uh, angles into this. About three summers ago, I live in Atlanta, Georgia, and one of my friends from Singapore, his name is Du Eng Seng. He was the CEO of Gillette for Asia Pacific. He's a very fine man. 
and Dew phoned me and said, Brother Ravi, are you going to be in town tomorrow? I'm in Atlanta. I'd love to see you. I said, Dew, I'm leaving tomorrow for five weeks. I'd love to see you too, but really, I'm, I'm not going to be here after midday. I've got to, I've got to be flying out. He said, Ravi, I have to see you. I thought, oh, brother, something's wrong. I said, all right, I'll meet you for a quick breakfast. It'll be 30 minutes, and then I'll have to go back home, pick up my bags, and leave. He said, that's fine. So we met at a little pancake house type place. We ordered the pancakes, and they sat there in front of us. We never even touched them. He said, you know, Ravi, I wake up every morning, and I've had a habit. Before I wash up and get on my knees for my formal time of prayer, I lie in bed for about 30 minutes, and I just say this, Lord, speak to me if there's anything you want me to do to prepare for this day. And he said, I'll lie there. He said, yesterday being in Atlanta, you were so much on my mind. And he said, and you came to my mind. And I said, Lord, is there any word you want me to give my brother Ravi? He said, and God spoke to me, and that's why I wanted to see you. Boy, that scared me. (laughs) Never had anything happen like this. He looked at me and he said, God told me in my thinking there to tell you that the anointing on your life in the years to come will be greater than the years that have gone by. I just looked at him. I said, do you, you sure the Lord told you this? He said, yes, my brother. He said, but then he told me something and that's why I wanted to see you. He said, tell Ravi, he will still have a lot of struggles and challenges physically, but I'm going to take care of him, three, four, five. He said, Lord, I don't know what you mean. He said, you tell Ravi, he'll know what I mean. I'm here to tell you, the Lord said, you'll have many challenges, but he's going to take care of you, three, four, five. Does that mean anything to you? I said, do you, for the last 28 years, I have lived with a broken back, and it came about by the herniation of L3-4 and L4-5. And I'm straddled from L3 to S1, those bolts in me. So when you say 3, 4, 5, all I can think of is L3, 4, and L4, 5. He started crying. He said, I knew nothing of what the spine is like. He said, where is this? So I told him just about that belt line. He put his hand on my back and he prayed for me. I've been prayed for many times. I've got all the oils in the world that can be tested, you know. So if you're sending me any, please send it to somebody else who might need it. I've got all the oils that I need. I'm joking about that. I've appreciated those who've tried to help me. He prayed. I went back home and I was hurriedly trying. You know, I couldn't even bend down. I can't lift a suitcase. I can't lift a bag. That's why I travel with my colleague. And I told Margie, I said, honey, something happened this morning, but I don't want you to tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Here's what happened. She said, oh, wow. So we left. My colleague, Crin, who was here till today, took ill, and he's flown back to Atlanta. He came, picked me up, went to the airport, went around, and next airport, we're checking, going through security, and after security, I'd get on my knees and tie my shoelace because I could not cross my legs. If I did this, just pull, and I'd be limping for days. Without even thinking, I sat on a chair, crossed my leg, and started to tie my shoelace. And he looked at me and said, what are you doing? From that day till now, I have never had any pain in my back. <laughs>
Just a minute. Am I nervous that it might return? <laughs> or you have little faith? Do I have tightness? Am I have to be careful? But Thomas travels with me now, I'll tell you. I do naughty things. I'll pick up my suitcase, pick up my bags, put them up there. I'll do all kinds of things. I just say, Lord, if you have really healed me, I need to at least be able to put my briefcase up on the top out there. I don't know what it means, but I just want to tell you, God works on a timetable. He didn't come for Lazarus when they wanted him to come for Lazarus. He said, this is done that the work of God might be displayed about the blind man whom he healed. If you're struggling with a personal, physical malady, God works with a timetable. And don't be shocked if one day he meets you in that need and you are well again. It may be that the ultimate translation will come into his very presence. I can't guarantee how it will work. I can only tell you, as a Christian apologist who lives with so much thought, my heart has been strangely warmed by the miracle of his healing 28 years after my injury with that back. He works on a timetable. His grace is sufficient to raise the question without him makes the question moot. So to make the question consistent and find his grace sufficient and work with this timetable, you can become a shining light even in your pain to a world that's desperately looking for examples in that. One man told me, and I close with this, he said to me, when you're looking to be mentored and discipled, look to somebody who has suffered much and whose faith in God has remained unshaken. Those are the mentors I look for. So that's my answer to this person. Maybe we can take one more. I don't know how this goes. All right. uh, one thing, uh, Margie is obvious that the next time Robbie tells you, don't tell anybody, you don't have to take that that seriously. <laughs> because, anyway. Because he right. it in public. Anyway. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Come on down. Hello. Living on this side of the cross and understanding the significance of it and satisfying the wrath of God. Can you get close to the microphone? <laughs> Living on this side of the cross and understanding the significance of it and satisfying the wrath of God are believers called to be pacifists, specifically in military services. I got the first heart. Living on this side of the cross and... Are, are believers uh, called to be pacifists? Oh, wow. In military services. Okay. You know, uh, are you in the armed forces? No. Well, you look like you should be. You look strong <laughs> enough there, yeah. <laughs> I do a lot with our military. I've been to so many of their bases all over, you know, from Guam to Ramstein to Qatar and Doha and many of those, and I as Stuttgart. I had many, all of our academies. I've been to the Air Force in this year. I'll be back at the Annapolis for the third time. I've done West Point and so on. I have the highest gratitude and respect for our armed forces because I know how they sacrifice their life, sometimes in even meaningless wars that seem so that we may have our freedom, and these values are always purchased at a great price. When I was in my 20s, I was halfway through my undergraduate studies in Toronto, Canada, and uh, I was invited to go to Vietnam. 
I was not in the armed forces, but I covered the length of that country all the way down to the south from Vumtau through Saigon and Dalat and Hue and Guangai, uh, Quang Tri, all the way to the demilitarized zone in Quang Tri, watching the war going on in an amber, amber colored sky. I flew with the military, they would fly me in their gunships, their choppers and all of that, and because of them I got to all of the major areas. And I gained a deep appreciation for the loneliness that they go through and some of the fear. I remember one day in Saigon, there was a whole slew of airmen and the closing hymn, they sang, the church service sang. The pastor was a man by the name of Paul Bubna who became a personal friend of mine. And the booming voices singing it as well with my soul. And at the end of it, the pastor looked at me and said, most of these boys will not return after the next mission. You know, that's how serious it was. So I've seen warfare close on hand. It changed me, changed my ministry. In a world that has fallen, in a world that is skewed, in a world that has gone so far away from God, our nation that needs to survive, that needs to protect its families, that needs to protect its children, needs a strong military to defend it, where there are exploiters and abusers who will seek to destroy us and take away the lives of our families and our children. And the simple principle, I believe in the just war theory. I don't have time to go into that. I am personally not a pacifist, but I do know there are many who are, and I will respect that conviction. And many of them will end up as chaplains or whatever, or working in hospitals, and I will honor that because God can put that conviction into people's heart for that reason. But I think they need to do it out of the conviction of why they are there in that situation. All I know is if all of us became pacifists, we're finished tomorrow. There would be no tomorrow for the country. If for somebody, I know I don't have a daunting physique. Uh, I was speaking to the Atlanta Braves once and I walked in and said, it's terrible to walk in and be the only one who fails the physical. And I'm looking at them. I'll tell you the funny line. I gave my wife a hug once. She's from Canada. They have a very subtle sense of humor. The Canadians do, you know. We've been married 42 years now. I gave her a big hug, hug and she looks at me and says, she has a nickname for me, which I won't give to you. And then she said, you have the arms of a thinking man. So after I retire, I'm going to work out and develop the arms of a non-thinking man. So what I say to you is this. If my family were attacked, I would do everything in my power to overwhelm and overcome the one who's trying to hurt them. Whether I had the strength or not would be immaterial. I would have the will to defend them. And I think we, especially in this country now, need to know there are those who are going to seek to destroy us and try to overwhelm us. We need to be strong and just and wise and know how to pick these battles. The fact of the matter is, in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, where there were soldiers and all, often in places of defense needed, that we have to protect the integrity of a country and the safety of our children. So I believe if a person is a pacifist, I will respect his or her conviction. I am not of that stripe. I would believe firmly our country needs a strong defense, lest it be overwhelmed by those with evil intentions and a worldview that would destroy the values for which this country stands and was built. I'll leave you with that.
now. As my closing statement, oh, 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 oh. yeah, yeah, yeah. I see two more. There, one more. Yeah, yeah. This is one they think you'll uh, want to answer. This is uh, from our student ministries, who's meeting in another building. It says, uh, "This is student watching from the porch," and I was wondering how students, the next generation, should study apologetics and approach those who are skeptical to the faith. How do we share our faith without getting judged as a socially awkward religious kid? Primarily for the student world, you mean? Right, yeah. 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 Okay. And I want you to talk yeah. about what you want to do in Atlanta, too. Oh, okay. I think that Thank would be you great. so much. Um, all right, sir, I'll take yours at the end. You look terribly saddened, although you're not now. That, uh, I'll take that. Just don't make it difficult, all right? Not the age of the earth or anything like that. Uh, um, Thank you for asking that. Uh, is that a university student level, a high school level? It's high school level. Wow, that's great. Uh, if we don't reach our young, if we don't encourage our students to think, if we don't train them how to think, if we don't give them the disciplines of how to answer questions, we are flirting with the extinction of the church in the next generation. We simply have to give. Look at, I mean, this is the largest turnout we've had of the three days, and there was no preaching. I, I don't know what that says about the preaching, but you came to, in order to listen to some questions answered. We all have those questions. We have to put it together in our one, two, three, four, five grid. We have to look for the answers because there's no way you can ultimately trust until it has also made sense in your head. Now, it may not always make satisfaction, but it does make sense within a worldview. If you're watching The Phantom of the Opera and you've never seen the play, you listen to all those screams, you'll never believe it's music until you know the story of why the screaming is going on. It fits into the narrative. So you have to know the narrative and the big picture, and then both the laughter and the screams find their place. To the young, I would say, learn to read well. Select your authors well. I mean read. I don't just mean listen. I don't just mean watch. Learn to read well, because in reading, you are getting exact expressions. What did somebody say? Reading makes uh, an informed person. Writing makes an exact person. So the writer is trying to be exact in what they're saying. And as you glean from their writing, you will start writing ideas too. I, books are my friends. I mean, I have several thousand volumes in my library. My dad never could have believed that one day I'd be living with books. I always thought books were mainly meant to put lampstands on or something like that. But it, think of the volume of books. Do you know, we think of uh, the uh, uh, IBM 25, that, uh, what was, Deep Blue? which was spit against a man and won that, the best thinker and won that competition in that game. Do you know how many uh, pages of information were put into that computer? 200 million pages of information with the RAM capacity and all of that and the algorithms to be able to spit out an answer within three seconds of anything that was asked. But it took that many millions of pages to put it in there. Uh, just enormous knowledge. I would say read well. Read good biblical material. First of all, read the Bible and get to know it. Read devotional material. Read philosophical material as you get more and more ready. And whatever you read, never let it get to your head. Always remain humble and teachable and know how to use it wisely. So the first thing is reading. The second thing is find the right kind of mentor. 
Find the right kind of person along whose side you will learn to walk and be transparent and admit what is going on inside of you. Don't fake it. Find the right kind of mentor. Be active as a young person in your church. Learn to attend. Learn to be regular. Learn to give as a young person. Because where your treasure is there, your heart is also. You will learn to give when you really and truly love God. Choose the right friends. Very critical because a friend can lead you all in the wrong direction. Learn to select the best professors whom you will listen to and be mentored by. One professor can turn you on a journey into life where you never ever dreamed. I now owe my calling to my professors under whom I studied. They were really my teachers and instructors. Most importantly, I would say then, find the right kind of partner in life who would stand by you because the journey is very lonely as you walk with God and serve God. But start by the word, learn to read well, get yourself a mentor, be active in your group and in church where you're being fed and the mutual growth comes about. Select your friends wisely, learn to give. And I say finally, select your mate very, very carefully. You will make either your heaven or hell in this world, depending on whom you select. And some of you are shaking your head like it's too late or what. I don't know what it is. I hope not. And one thing I want to end with, what Pastor Coffey asked me to say. You know, if I can take a few minutes, you're already here, you've suffered this long, as well suffer a little longer. Last year, I was in Jakarta, Indonesia. And a friend of mine was trying to twist my arm into building an apologetics university in Indonesia. And he was willing to buy the land, buy the building, all of this. And finally I looked at him, I said, you know, I have heard it said that university professors never die. They just lose their faculties. (laughs) I said, you want me to run a university from Atlanta here in Jakarta? I said, do me a favor help me build one in Atlanta so that I don't have to leave my family anymore. We will do it out of there. And so we started dreaming together and he gave the first major gift towards it. We are presently looking at a property that's about 80 acres with four buildings, about 220,000 square feet. We are right in the thick of negotiations. It has lecture halls, 35 hotel rooms built in. It's a state-of-the-art building ready to move into for instruction. We want to bring in the finest Christian scholars and put some of them in residence. Bring in our young people at, at an early age. Bring in our pastors, our youth pastors, our business people. Those who don't need to get intimidated by the Oxford program which we run, which is a degree program, but at a popular level can be armed and equipped to meet the challenge of our times. Please pray with us. It's an enormous number we're looking at. And you know, after 30 years of leading this organization, the last thing I want to do is put the organization in debt. So we are praying very hard. And the slew of young apologists like Nabil Qureshi, Michael Ramsden, uh, Vince Vitale, Tom Price, Amy Orr Ewing, Tanya Walker, or there's so many, if I start naming all of them, we've got about 40-some apologists placed in 11 countries, and we want the Atlanta Institute of Apologetics and Contemporary Thought 
to become a world center for Christian apologetics so that the media can go there and find how the Christians are answering the toughest questions in science, in arts, and in all of the issues that confront us. Please pray with us. I would love to see this thing readied by next year while there are still some strands attached. I may as well see that fulfilled. But I act the Institute of Apologetics and Contemporary Thought based in Atlanta. And since the pastor is so gracious to us and we had breakfast this morning, if the Lord lays that on your heart to help us get there, I will just rise up and call you blessed. That's exactly what we need to get done for the sake of the youth of our time. That is the burden on my heart to really fulfill that. It may be the greatest legacy I would want to leave in my lifetime, even beyond the books, a training institute for young thinkers that can take on a scorching paganism that is surrounding us. So we want to be that kind of place. At Oxford, we've got OCA, the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics, academically strong in Atlanta at a popular level where we can bring people from all over the world. That's our dream. Yes, sir. Uh, I don't have any question about the divinity of Christ. We all fully believe that Yahweh, Jesus Christ, and Holy Spirit is being part of the Trinity. We also believe that Jesus Christ has been co-eternal with Yahweh. But when it says Christ is the Son of God, I don't understand. What does that Son mean? Well, I wish I'd ended earlier. Uh, my goodness. <laughs> I don't want to dodge it, but let me tell you this. Have you got our book, Beyond Opinion? Not yet. Oh, I'll get, get it. Get a hold of it. And if you can't afford it, write to me. I'll send you a copy. We've got one of my former colleagues, L.T. Jaychandran, whose entire specialty is in this issue of co-eternality and essence. I'm married with my niece. And you're asking me the question? <laughs> Have you read L.T.'s chapter on that? Uh, English is my second language. I don't read much. <laughs> but I will listen to audio. Oh, wow. So you want to read it in what? Telugu or Hindi? No, no. I will buy the audio. Okay. To get that book. And second thing, I will ask you, if you could last on Wednesday, Nabil Qureshi debated this very issue with Shabir Ali, the Muslim apologist from Toronto. In less than 24 hours, over 30,000 had viewed that debate. And Nabil's entire thesis was that on the defense of the Trinity. Let me just say to you briefly that when you hear that and you read L.T. Jaychandran's treatment of the Trinity or Colin Gunton, the English writer, they've dealt with this. Look at it conversely. If God were a monad, a single entity without the triunity, our language would be staggering a bit because you start talking about God loving and God communicating. Who would he love? Love needs the significant other. Communicating is core. There are two involved. In a monadic concept, love becomes a vacuous term except that the infinite needs the finite in order to express that attribute of love but in the trinity itself you have got community in the trinity where there is love 
co-equal in essence and triune in person. The greatest search of the Greek philosophers was for unity in diversity. Greatest search, if you lead Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, they were looking for unity in diversity. That's why they started universities. They were looking for unity in diversity. That's what America was founded, e pluribus unum. We have this whole search for unity and diversity. There's no answer. Why do we search for unity and diversity? I believe because there was unity and diversity in the first cause. And in the Godhead, where there was love and fellowship in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, there is unity and diversity in the community of the Trinity. That reflection is given to us. And if you go through the scriptures, you find particular scriptures explaining how it is. And I will just say to you, he's one in one sense and three in another sense. And we need to recognize the very person of God will ever remain a mystery that transcends the mere mathematical understanding we have. Ironically, even the Quran uses the plurality in the first person, we, we, we. And even in the Islamic faith, they tell you not to blaspheme against Muhammad or blaspheme against the Quran. You can only blaspheme against God. We don't blaspheme each other. We may offend each other. So even they very subtly elevate two other sources into an equal status. We don't need to elevate them. They're already elevated, given to us in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in that triunity, you start off with this, and I'll close with this now. If you take one dimension, you can draw a straight line. If you take two dimensions, you can draw figures. If you take three dimensions, you can build an object. You move from finitude to infinity. In our finitude, we cannot have the one and three. I believe in the complexity of the infinity. You climb up higher and higher the ladder of possibilities, and it is possible in those, that dimension in which God exists, it is no more difficult to understand than how Jesus could be God and man at the same time. There is that reality of very God, of very God, very man, of very man. And I just say to you, know him and you will find out that the Father loved you, the Son offered himself for you, and the Holy Spirit indwells you. And because of that, you can call him Abba, Father. That's it. God bless you. And, uh, let me close with this. I'll just, I just... I close with this statement. Uh, there's a book I co-authored with Norm Geisler, my professor. It's called uh, Who Made God? And when we published that book, the, pub the publisher thought, you know, I'm not going to go very long. It goes on and on and on and on. Tens of thousands. When I wrote the book, Can Man Live Without God? My wife was with me when the publishers came and said, this is too sophisticated. Expect a shelf life of about four to six months. It has had a shelf life now of 22 years, and it is still the number one selling book of all that I've written. People have questions. Can man live without God with three lectures delivered at Harvard University in defense of the Christian faith? Get a hold of these. Read people like Lee Strobel, Josh McDowell, Norman Geisler, N.T. Wright, Oz Guinness. You'll find they will feed your soul in ways that will bridge this to this. Ultimately, 
We are not heads bouncing around or hearts floating around. You have to find the connection to, from the head to the heart. That's the longest journey in life. May God help you accomplish that journey. Please pray for us. And Pastor Joe, I once again want to thank you, sir, for your hospitality, your kindness, and your whole team that has worked so hard. At RZM, we've never had an event like this where we've been invited well ahead in order just to come alongside and stand this team. And I cannot tell you what that means to us as a group of apologists. It is so affirming and so encouraging. May God richly bless you. And if our paths cross again, I'll try and come up with some new stories. God be with you. Thank you. Thanks so much uh, for coming uh, tonight. Uh, just a couple of things. I know we have uh, pretty much uh, taken Robbie and squeezed everything out of him this weekend, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So I know there are a lot of you, there are several thousand people on this campus, and uh, there are a bunch of you that want to meet him or uh, have him sign books or anything. We're going to whisk him back because he's got to be exhausted by now, and that's just to protect him and his health. So uh, thanks for your understanding. Second thing is there are uh, a number of resources out in the atrium for those of you on this campus, and we'd love for you to see those, purchase those, use those. Uh, that'll be a great, great uh, opportunity for you. And then finally, uh, the parking lot is packed. The shuttle area is packed. Uh, be really careful. Be patient. Love each other <laughs> while you leave. All right? Uh, but thanks, everybody, for uh, coming and for participating in uh, this Micah 6-8 weekend uh, where we have joined in partnership with Rabbi Zacharias. And you know uh, now uh, why we're so privileged to be a part. So let me uh, close in prayer. Father in heaven, uh, thank you for giving different gifts to different people. Thank you for the way that you have uh, gifted uh, Ravi and how you have assembled this team uh, that he has. Lord, uh, our prayer is that uh, he would be encouraged and strengthened, that you would protect him. And I pray for this vision of establishing this apologetic center in Atlanta. Uh, that is something we so desperately uh, need as the church, uh, looking forward uh, ahead to the 21st century and all the challenges that it brings. Thanks for, uh, bringing, uh, for raising up uh, somebody like Ravi Zacharias. I pray for he and Margie and uh, their whole family. And thanks for the opportunity for our church to participate with him and partner with him. Uh, Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for coming. God bless.